All right, today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. You can follow along on the screen. Hear now the word of God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. Amen. So we're really excited to begin a new sermon series. Uh, Over the next few weeks, we'll be going through the book of Colossians. So if you're trying to figure out uh, what to read in the Bible, there you go. You can read through the book of Colossians. That way you'll be more prepared as we go through it. Colossians is a prison epistle. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. And this letter is addressed to the church in Colossus. What's interesting is that Paul uh, never actually met these people to whom he's writing. Uh, most Every other letter he's writing to a church, he either started uh, and or spent at least a good amount of time there. But what happened in this case was Paul was preaching in Ephesus. Ephesus is where we get the book of Ephesians from. And a man named Epaphras became a Christian under Paul's ministry. And then Epaphras went back to his hometown of Coloss and he began a church there. And then Epaphras went to Paul while Paul was in prison, to tell Paul about what was happening with his own church in Coloss. So in a sense, Paul is writing to his spiritual grandchildren. He discipled Epaphras, and now he's addressing the people that Epaphras has discipled. And Epaphras told Paul everything that was happening in his church. The church was growing. You know, we see that in our main passage today. There's a lot to be thankful for. But there were also threats to the church, such as false teachings. So Epaphras asked Paul, hey, Paul, can you you write this letter to help guide my church? And that's how the book of Colossians came about. We're calling the sermon series Colossians Be the Center because the main idea in this letter is how Jesus is the center. These false teachings were deceiving some of the people. The false teachings were saying that Jesus was not front and center. Jesus was just like an emanation of God the Father and not actually God himself. So Paul wants to set the record straight. And one reason we chose Colossians is that a major theme in this book is how to become a mature Christian. In fact, you know our theme this year, Deeply Rooted, uh, that comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. So this letter is a call to Christians to, to grow up, to become mature in the faith. In the first couple of chapters, Paul focuses on who Jesus is, uh, what he's done for us, uh, what he's going to do for us. That's, that's our firm foundation. And then the final two chapters, it's more about 
how to live. So first you need the right thinking, the right knowledge, and then you need to learn how to conduct yourselves well. So today we're going to look at Paul's pastoral prayer for this church. And even this prayer, we'll see some really rich ideas that will instruct us on how we should live. By the way, these pastoral prayers are awesome. I just want to encourage you to read these prayers. There's basically one or two in each of the New Testament letters. So read them, meditate upon them, and pray them. Um, this is what this, you know, the stuff in these pastoral prayers, that's what you should pray first and foremost for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I use them all the time to guide my prayers for all of you. Um, if you just pray the ideas in this prayer, you have done a great work in prayer. Because one answer, these are the prayer requests that really matter. Um, all the prayer requests we pray are important, but these are the ones that truly stick. So let's look at this prayer. Paul bursts out in thanksgiving for his church because of what he's heard from Epaphras. We see this in verses 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. So we have here, obviously, the two hallmarks of a mature Christian. We have faith in the Lord Jesus. Right? Faith is, I like to say, you know, faith is like putting all your eggs into one basket, the Jesus basket. Right? One way you can estimate your faith level is how quickly you turn to Jesus. Uh, when things go bad, when things go south, how quickly do you turn to Jesus? And also, how, how long do you continue to hold on? Uh, if you turn right away, if Jesus is your first call at the sign of trouble, then that's a good measure of faith. And if you're holding on to Jesus, not giving up, not looking to seize your own control, not taking eggs out of the Jesus basket and putting them in your own basket, you've got good faith. Uh, and then we have love, love for all of God's people. This is not a wishy-washy, emotional feel-good, uh, kumbaya kind of love, but being truly committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ, to show with your words and with your actions uh, that you truly love one another. And notice it says, all of God's people. And that means even those you are different than. Now, of course, we know that includes those who are different racially, those who are different socioeconomically. But perhaps today, in today's day and age, it's harder for us to love those who are different politically. Uh, you know, now more than ever in today's society, we're so quick to write off people that we don't agree with. We're so quick to cancel them and say, you know, I'm done with you. And that is not love. Right? If you love someone, you stay committed to them. Uh, perhaps you seek to persuade them, to have thoughtful and respectful conversations. Uh, but you don't just say goodbye. Uh, you don't just write them off. This is love for all of God's people. I love how the preacher and author Nona Jones puts it. She wrote recently about how she believes we're living in a crucible moment. Uh, chemistry was one of my least favorite subjects, but I understand a crucible is a small ceramic bowl that you place metals in, and they're subjected to very high temperatures uh, to see how those metallic substances will respond. And what's amazing is we know that some substances will melt while others will harden. Uh, some chemical bonds will get stronger while others will get weaker. The heat is the same, but the heat reveals uh, what the substance is made of. And Jones says we are in a crucible moment. Isn't that so true? Uh, COVID-19, all of its fallout. We, we've all been impacted individually and collectively. We've been impacted emotionally, financially, socially, and relationally. Obviously, all that's been happening with the recent injustice and the protests and how we're all 
processing and reacting to that. These two seasons are truly revealing the substance of our hearts, our faith in Jesus and our love for all of God's people. Uh, are we holding on to Jesus, uh, even as different trials pile up in the midst of this pandemic? Are we still loving people, even as we're physically disconnected? Are we looking to Jesus as the solution in this time of unrest? Or are we only looking for solely man-made solutions? Are we still loving each other? Again, even those who are not on board, even those who have different opinions than us. These two hallmarks are, re are being fully revealed in this crucible moment. And we know, we know how important these two hallmarks are. So the question arises, how? How do we grow in faith? How do we, how do we grow in love? Because if we grow in these two areas, we're, we're good to go, right? We're on the road to becoming mature believers. It's in this prayer that Paul reveals two sources that we need to tap into if we want to become more faithful and more loving. If we lean into these two sources, we will ensure that our faith is steadfast and our love will not grow cold. Number one, verse five. Paul talks about the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. So the first spring or the first source is hope. Okay, we have to differentiate between the dictionary definition and the biblical definition of hope. I actually looked up hope in the dictionary on dictionary.com, and here's what popped up. It says, hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. So according to this definition, hope is a feeling. It's a feeling that things will work out for the best. There is no sense of certainty. It's just a feeling. I hope things will work out. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. I hope she, he or she will like me. Right? She loves me. Maybe she loves me not. Right? I hope there will be a baseball season. Who knows? Right? But what I found very interesting and fitting is the example that dictionary.com used for this definition. You know, after the definition, most dictionaries give an example of how to use that word in a, in a sentence or, or a phrase. The example on dictionary.com was this, to give up hope. That's the example they chose. Hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had. Here's my example, to give up hope. How is that the example? Right, that's not the example I want to hear. But the good news for us is that biblical hope is not just a feeling. It is not just subjective. It's actually quite objective. This hope is a firm foundation based on a firm foundation, and his name is Jesus Christ. Our hope is rooted in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do for us in the future. See, if you believe in Jesus, then you believe that one day Jesus will return and take us home, and we will reign with him forever. That is a firm, objective hope. It's not a feeling. It's not, oh, I hope this happens. No, it's a truth. Don't get tripped up. When we talk about hope in the Bible, it's not just hoping things work out for the best. It's actually knowing things will work out for the best because of Jesus. I want to break out in this phrase. It says, hope stored up for you in heaven. Hope stored up for you in heaven. Let's break down that phrase. Hope is stored up. What does stored up make you think of? Stored up or, or laid up. It makes you think of treasure, right? It makes me think of treasure, right? That's, it's like a picture of Fort Knox that with guards always on duty. Uh, Paul is intentionally formulating this image 
of this grand hope, this grand treasure that's been set aside and is being fully guarded. Nobody can steal it. Nobody can take it away. Nobody can do any damage to it. It will always remain in mint condition. My brothers and sisters, we put our hope in so many things. And all those other things, and we've discovered that in our own lives, all those other hopes can be snatched away. But the hope we have in Jesus, this treasure that we have, will never be taken away from us. And one day we will see Jesus as he is. And we'll be like, wow, this is the hope. This is what I've been waiting for, this hope that's been stored all throughout the ages. It's really true. And then, yes, this is a hope stored up for you. Later on in our passage in verse 12, uh, Paul talks about this inheritance that we get to share in. That word inheritance is very intentional. It would remind uh, his readers who know the Old Testament of what happened in Israel. God gave all the people inheritance. God gave the tribes and the families of Israel different allotments of land. This parcel belongs to you. This land belongs to you. God was doling them out. So this hope is stored for you and you alone. It is stored away for you personally. There's a safe deposit box in heaven with your name on it. It is your own personal hope, your own personal treasure, your own personal inheritance. See, we're very good at having hope for other people. It's more easy to be full of hope uh, for others because in a sense, if there's disappointment, it's not as personal, it's not as tender. But meanwhile, we try to keep our hopes down. We manage our own disappointments. You know, we tell ourselves, you know, don't get your hopes up. Uh, however, God is storing up for you personally this hope, and he wants you and me to take hold of it. And we are to live our lives with great hope because of the truth of the gospel. And then this hope is stored up for you in heaven. If you're a Christian, you know that one day you will be in heaven. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more racism. There will be no more death. If you know how the story ends, that gives you strength when you're standing in the middle of that story. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. What a remarkable promise that is. But you may have noticed it says, after you have suffered a little while. You know, while we're suffering on this earth, it doesn't seem like a little while. It doesn't seem short at all. But what this verse is saying is, when we are sharing in that eternal glory with Jesus, our sufferings on earth, our worldly struggles, our pain here will actually seem like a short while. You know, we'll look back and be like, oh yeah, you know, with new perspective in retrospect, that was actually short. Now, of course, that's not to trivialize, that's not to downplay any of our current sufferings here on earth, but it does give us the right perspective. I also love how the preacher Levi Lusco puts it. He says, the more you look forward to the next world, the less you need from this world. Right? You know our final destination. You know that it's a sure thing. So you have that hope. And that hope empowers you to persevere. That hope empowers you to keep your eyes on Jesus, to keep the faith. And knowing this hope stored up for you in heaven, that brings a brightness to anything we face in life. 
Again, during 2020, right, not the best year. A lot of problems just popping up in our lives left and right. And we've had, you know, just things happen to us personally. Uh, but if there's hope of heaven in us, when anything happens, when any trial, any difficulty pops up, it does not knock us completely off. We may stagger a little. We may stagger a lot. But knowing this hope of heaven, it helps us to regain our bearings because we're focused on the long-term picture, the, the big picture. And I would say even in terms of what's happening currently in the fight against injustice. Uh, recently, our church leaders, we read through uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail, Birmingham jail. And I would encourage you to read through it carefully if you haven't already. Uh, what I love about Martin Luther King Jr. is not just the eloquence, um, not just the moral clarity, uh, even the love you see in his writings. If you see the way that he loves even white moderates, the way he's disappointed in them, that's also a model for us today. Uh, but I love that you can see hope imbued in all that he says. There's anguish. There's great pain. There's a full account specifically of all their sufferings. There is the cry of how long, O Lord. But you can also see that there is great hope. And that makes all the difference. If we do not possess this hope, then we will just be filled with rage. And we're seeing that in some pockets of our country. Uh, sin leads to more sin. If you don't have this hope in God, you will just naturally seek revenge. You will naturally seek to hurt somebody who has hurt you. However, if we lay hold of this hope that God is storing up for us, then we can act, we can contribute, we can take up the cause uh, without bitterness and with more clarity. And that's because hope is truly the source of faith and love. And remember, our hope is not a feeling. It's not a theory. It's a person. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And he is with us. He is in our midst. Uh, there's an old story about a little boy who was afraid of the dark. Uh, one night in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm, he cried out in fear. And his father went to his room and comforted him. And his father said to the son, you don't need to be afraid, son. Don't you know that Jesus is with you? The boy said, yes, but I want somebody with skin on. And that's how we feel often, right? We don't want invisible help. We want human help. But Jesus is truly the best help. He is truly our best hope. I actually experienced this earlier in the week. Um, I volunteer each week at uh, our community dinner table uh, at the Palisades Park Library. So, you know, we had just finished serving all the meals. So we're breaking down, we're cleaning up, getting ready to leave. Uh, everyone's, and then everyone just starts forming groups and talking. There's like one group of like three Korean women. It looked like they all knew each other. Maybe they went to the same church. There was one group of guys who worked for the town, so they all knew each other. They formed their own circle. Uh, there was this other group of Hispanic volunteers talking in Spanish. And another group of the two main leaders of our community dinner table talking with the mayor of Palisades Park. And then there was me, all alone, all by myself. I felt very uncomfortable. And I began weighing my options. One, I could leave. I could be like, bye-bye, everyone, and hopefully feel acknowledged and validated by their goodbyes. I could try to join one of the circles. I could talk to those Korean women and say I'm a pastor and hope they go, ooh. I could practice my Spanish skills, even though there's not much left. I could go to that group uh, with the leaders and the mayor. Right? I know all three of them, so I could you know, strut my way in. But then I didn't want to be that guy, right? the guy who just cuts in. So I remained standing all alone. But I really actually felt God say to me, uh, stay. Uh, don't go yet. You know, I wanted to go home. I, I was 
feeling lonely, socially anxious, you know, hungry. I want to go home and eat dinner. Uh, but I knew God was with me. I actually felt his love and his presence. And, you know, he, hearing him say uh, to tell me to stay. So I had hope, even in the midst of feeling left out. And sure enough, one of the guys who worked for the town, uh, that was the one circle I was not considering joining, he actually came up to me and started talking with me. And we had a great conversation. I actually encouraged him in his faith and um, his need to commit to a church. See, none of that would have happened if I had just left, you know, hoping to be validated by the goodbyes, or if I tried to invade one of the other circles in order to feel important. Right? But I knew that my help was present. Right? I didn't need help with skin on. Right? And that led me to an opportunity to bless somebody. So you see, the hope that we have in Jesus is real. It's objective. It's truth. But we're human beings. Right? We need to feel the truth. We need the objective to become subjective. Right? God wants you to know the hope you have in him up here, but he also wants you to feel it, to experience it. And that's why we need to constantly pray so that we can hear from God. We can be reminded of the hope we have in him. How many dumb things have we done? How many bad decisions have we made because we just happen to lack hope in that moment. But do you see how when we experience that hope that is stored up for us in heaven, how that readily leads to faith in Jesus, how that leads to love for all of God's people. When you possess a strong confidence in who Jesus is, what he's done for you, what he's going to do for you, you are set free from self-centeredness, you are set free from self-pity, you are set free from fear and greed. Those sins become uprooted and a new plant grows in its place, right? The plant of faith grows in the soil, right? And the fruit actually becomes the love, right? The, the, the root is hope, the plant is faith, and the fruit of love just comes out of that, right? So that's number one. Hope is, one of, is a key source for faith and love. And number two, let's look at verses 9 through 10. Verse 9, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. I want you to notice all the great results you see from this point forward in verse 10. That you may live a life worthy of the Lord, please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. So you see a lot of these great results, right? a lot of amazing byproducts. And we see how they're produced as a result of being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Oftentimes, when we think about God's will, we think about questions like, uh, what career path am I going to take? Uh, am I going to get that job? Who am I going to marry? Should we move? We see God's will as an itinerary, uh, where God wants us to go, what God wants us to do in a, in a fixed time and place. And listen, God does care about all those things. He does care about all those details. Uh, we sent out a newsletter on Friday. It had that great excerpt by Philip Yancey about how we should pray. There are no selfish prayers, right? Pray all the things that are on your heart, all the decisions, all the things that you're feeling. Pray all those things. Absolutely. But growing in the knowledge of his will is actually so much more comprehensive and so much more fulfilling than a simple prayer request or a simple decision. What we're talking about here is a understanding of how God works. It's knowing God's protocols. It's grasping who God is, his, his character, his heart, his inclinations. If you grow in that knowledge, 
then you will naturally bear fruit. You will naturally be strengthened with all power. Growing in the knowledge of God's will means that you know that God is good. It means that you know that God is on my side. I know that he cares for me. I know that he fights for me. I know that he delights in me. I know that he smiles over me. I know that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I know that God is actively working for my good. Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Even the things that seem insignificant, even the things that seem unfair, God is working for my good and your good. One preacher liked to say whenever he faced trials or any kind of suffering, he would freak out. He'd be like, why, God, why is this happening to me right now? Now, he says, when the trial pops up, when he faces a danger or, or, or some pain or suffering, his first reaction is, oh, God's going to get some glory. I, I can't wait to see how God's going to get glory out of this situation. That is knowledge of God's will, knowing how God operates, knowing God's intentions. That gives us oomph, that gives us strength in the midst of our hard times. See, the more you know, the more you can endure. Right? Verse 11 says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. That word according, according to his glorious might. According means in proportion to. Here's what I mean. Uh, let's say I'm a billionaire, and you ask me for a cash gift, and I give you $10. Okay, that is not in proportion. That is not according to my what. That's being stingy. Okay, my, my wife likes to call me Stingy Bob, right, when I refuse to buy or something. But like, if I give $100 million, now we're talking, right? Now that's in proportion. So this verse is saying that God wants to strengthen us with all power according to, in proportion to, his glorious might. He doesn't want you and me to just get by. He doesn't want you and me to just grit our teeth and hope it all works out. No, he wants us to endure with all power and with joy, with great endurance and patience. Those are two different words here. Endurance actually refers to situations, like right, enduring through tough situations, like all of 2020. Right? And that word patience it has to do with people. Okay, no matter how annoying people are, no matter how difficult they can be, it's being patient with them. And again, not just bearing that person, but loving that person, actually caring about that person. And when you grow in the knowledge of God, you see much better. Everything that's happening in your life, you develop this new paradigm. And that paradigm, the more, you, the more and the more, the more you know about God, the more and more and more that paradigm becomes clearer. And everything just makes more sense. Oh, I can see now why God is doing that in my life. Right? Not that you can see 100%, but you can see much better. Or I can see now why God might be doing that in my loved one's life. Oh, I can see better why God is allowing this to happen in our country right now. Um, that's why growing in the knowledge of the will of God, that is the best use of your learning time. This should be the primary course in your curriculum. Okay, more than the news, more than every video that you watch online, no matter how important it seems in that moment, this is the most important class to take. And better yet, this paradigm, right, you will be more discerning. You'll be more in tune of what God is doing, what's happening all across this nation and this world. And that's why Pastor Key and I, in our previous newsletter, we exhorted you guys to pray. 
Right? Don't just run off and highlight everything you see on social media or in the news. No, spend time in the Word. Grow in the knowledge of God's will. You know, for example, we, we see how black lives have been snuffed out unjustly. If you know God's heart toward people, if you know the delight that God took in creating each human being, your heart only increases in understanding. Your heart only increases in joining with God in grieving. So spend time learning about God. We need that more than ever. Right? That's why you need to read your Bible. It's not, it's not about to feel better about yourself. It's not so you can check it off your spiritual checklist. It's because you get to grow in the knowledge of God's will. And like I said the last time I preached, that's why you should also read great Christian books. Right? They can be a great supplement to help you grow in your understanding. And that learning, that knowledge, will only cause your prayers to be more laser-focused. See, the more you know God, the more you want to pray, and the more words you actually have to pray, because you know God's heart, you know what he's about, and that serves as a guiding light for your prayers. I watched some of uh, George Floyd's funeral in Houston, and there was this reverend, Dr. Mary White, and she gave this prayer. I don't know if any of you saw it, but it was so powerful. It was so passionate. And what made it so powerful is here's a woman who knows God, who knows the heart of God. And that only adds more fire, more clarity, more conviction to her prayers. So my friends, we need to know God. Let's say you're driving around and you become hopelessly lost. Okay, this ex uh, let's make this example pre-smartphone, uh, pre-Garmin GPS days, even pre-MapQuest, okay, if you got that. You're old like I am. Right, so let's say you're lost and you don't know where to go. What would you rather have? Would you rather have a detailed topographical map or would you rather have a local resident who can just hop in and tell you exactly where to go? Some of you are like, I want the map, but that's because you don't like people. That's another issue. Right? Or you're overrating your map skills. You should, you should want the resident. Right? He or she knows all the ins and outs, even the shortcuts. Uh, that person will guide you quite well. And when it comes to the will of God, this is what Tim Keller said. Uh, by the way, we, you know, let's pray for Tim Keller. We know he's battling cancer right now. But Keller puts it this way. He says, we often want the plan, but not the planner. We often want the map, but not the map maker. You know, often when we think of God's will, we're really saying, God, just show me the plan. God, just, just show me the map. Just tell me make this one decision. When God wants to give us so much more, he wants to give us himself. Why would you want just bits and pieces of God's guidance when you can actually know God? And of course, if you know God, if you know his heart, if you know his general will, his general purposes, he'll guide you with all those specific things. God's specific will for your life, that will all fall into place because you are growing in the knowledge of God's will. That specific will is just a tiny part of the will of God. Don't just settle for that. In fact, that word filled, verse 9, being filled with the knowledge of his will. And that word carries the idea of being fully equipped, uh, like a ship that is fully equipped and ready to go out to sea. The ship is now good to go. All the preparations have been taken care of. All the safety checks have been done. It's equipped with great defense measures. That ship may face storms. That ship may face turbulent winds and high waves. That ship may come across hostile ships, and pirates. And maybe there's some pirates in our life. Uh, but that ship has everything it needs. That ship will be fine. That ship will be navigated really well. So brothers and sisters, let's grow 
in the knowledge of God's will. So hope and the knowledge of God's will. If we grow in these two areas, if we take hold of the hope we have in God, if we seek to know more about God's will, we will become more deeply rooted in these two areas. We will naturally grow in faith and love. Faith in Jesus and love for all of God's people. That will be just natural fruit. Right? It's not, it's, these are not two things you can just obtain magically. Right? They just naturally grow as a result of knowing hope uh, and knowing God's will. One last thing about the knowledge of God's will. Let's look at verse 6 again. It says the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So the gospel is bearing fruit, growing throughout the world. And it all began when the people at Colossus, it says here, truly understood God's grace. I want to ask you that today. Do you truly understand God's grace? See, oftentimes we just stop at God's mercy. Here's what I mean by that. Mercy is not being treated as you deserve. When you say to someone, have mercy on me, what are you saying? You're saying, don't punish me. I deserve it, but forgive me instead. And mercy is amazing. God's mercy, God forgiving our sins. If we know how sinful we are, that is mind-boggling in itself. And we desperately need to grasp that. But grace is actually being treated as you do not deserve. It's like the next level after mercy. Mercy is your sins are forgiven, you're given a clean slate. That's awesome. Grace is you are now declared fully righteous in the sight of God. Grace is you have not only been saved from hell, but you're going to enjoy paradise with Jesus in heaven. Grace is you are no longer a slave to sin, but now you are free as a child to run around in the house of God. Grace is you've been deported out of darkness, but now you reside in a place of everlasting light. Grace is not just a father saying, I forgive you, let's turn the page. Grace is a father running to you, throwing his arms around you, kissing you, putting his best robe on you, putting a ring on your finger, and even throwing a party for you. So I ask you again, do you truly understand God's grace? Grace means you don't have to be ashamed anymore. No matter what you've done on your worst days, no matter how many secrets you have, it's all forgiven. And Jesus has bestowed his righteousness upon you. Grace means that all your insecurities are actually a lie because God is fully pleased with you. God fully delights in you. When you know that, you know that's truly enough. Grace means you don't have to perform well all the time. It's perfectly okay if you fail at your job as a spouse, as a parent, as a single, in your desire to be a good person. It's okay when you feel like an imposter. The grace of God sets you free because your status is one who is deeply loved, already approved, and that never changes. In verse 13, I want to show you what Paul says. He says, For God the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In the kingdom, into the kingdom of the Son he loves. At first glance, that seems unnecessary. Uh, he loves. You could just say kingdom of the Son and leave it there. But here's the point. Because God the Father loves God the Son, Jesus, it, was, it pleased God the Father to give Jesus the kingdom as his inheritance. So when Jesus died for you and me and rose again three days later, he received his inheritance. What does that inheritance consist of? It consists of his people, of you and me who believe in Jesus. So each person that God calls 
and receives as his child is actually a love gift from the Father to the Son. You are a gift of love that the Father has given to Jesus. That's why Jesus died for us. He was eager. He was joyful. He couldn't wait to receive these gifts. So he hung on that cross. He declared triumphantly, it is finished. Father, I've satisfied your holiness. I've satisfied your wrath towards sin. Come now, let me receive my inheritance. And that's you. My brothers and sisters, do we truly understand God's grace? I pray that we do. Because when we do, we will grow in faith. We will grow in love. We will stand firm, deeply rooted in hope and in the knowledge of God's will. Let's pray together.